I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. It's great to be back, everyone. Today, we are discussing album number 16 on the Sound Logic Podcast. That is Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. And we are very happy to welcome back to the podcast our resident Bob Dylan expert, Chris Clements. Chris, thank you for joining us again. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be flattered, you guys. <laughs> I don't think I'm an expert, but here we are nonetheless. Um, and this is very special because you are our very first return guest host. So congratulations. Yeah. And you Again with the we'll send you, uh, I love it. Keep it coming, yeah. <laughs> There were so many uh, people writing in to say, like, who is this guy and when we get him back that <laughs> okay. we just, uh, okay, I'm we just had to do it. <laughs> uh, so, okay, this is our uh, third Bob Dylan album yeah. on the list. Okay. Uh, so, Ben, have you listened to this album before? I'm pretty sure I listened to this album at some point, but I don't have any memory of it. Uh, and on this listen through preparing for this episode, um, I don't know that any songs necessarily were ones that I could have picked out before. Although there was a familiarity to it that made me wonder if, uh, you know, in that same <laughs> in that same space where I downloaded all the Beatles albums, I also snagged a few Dylan albums, and I'm pretty sure this was one of them. Uh, oh, okay. You know, with Blonde on Blonde and Highway 61 and Freewheeling, free uh, I think this was just an album I thought I should listen to. So I right. probably listened to it once 10 years ago, um, but it obviously didn't resonate enough for me to keep listening. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, uh, <laughs> like all the other Dylan albums, I'd never listened to it, so it was brand new to me. Uh, I think I had heard... Uh, Tangled Up in Blue and Shelter from the Storm before. That's it. So now we get to our expert. Uh, Chris, <laughs> we assume that you've you've listened to this album before. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember when you first heard it? Was it, you know, when you started your whole journey with Dylan or was there a specific yeah, I time? Was, I was trying to remember even when I bought this album, the case is fairly scratched. So I think it may have been like early university or something like that. I, I do recall my brother and I, for some reason that is beyond me, had a Bob Dylan kick where we were for a period of time, like racing one another to try and complete the discography. And um, somewhere along the way, I purchased Blood on the Tracks and I, it, like it stood out from the pack. Like it may be, in my opinion, one of his better or to his best. So uh, yeah, I've heard it before. And uh, can, can I say like it was it was, I really enjoyed going through Blood, Blood on the Tracks again. Um, at our place, we put our kids to bed, or my my ten month old. He loves Post Malone. Um, I don't know what the deal with that is, but like he'll 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 look at the screen and focus and then fall asleep. So it's there's a lot of Post Malone during nap time in our house. But it was so great really to, um, to put 
put this back on and I got lost in like covers on YouTube of the various songs on here. So heard it, loved it. Happy to be here. I wa- Before we go on, I want to ask, because something's been on my mind lately. And Chris, I want to ask you, do you have a record player? Do you have any vinyl? No, no, I don't actually. Um, here's my excuse, if, I, if I'm allowed to have an excuse. Of course. I started collecting CDs like in in I think probably grade eight or so and like no one you didn't own vinyl then and so it just turned out that like you don't want to have all your collection in one medium and then some in another and some in another so it was like just CDs and I never got into the vinyl scene yeah I think my story's similar I, I gotta tell you I was listening to this album and thinking this sounds pretty good hmm. but what would it sound like on vinyl I just had the experience and if you've listened to the podcast you know, two two albums ago, listen to Abbey Road, and I got to listen to it on vinyl with a friend, and I was blown away with the depth of sound on the mm. record. It sounded so good, and and I was hearing things that I hadn't heard before, and listening to it digitally. Which, you know, if we're listening to CDs, we're listening to all our music digitally now, and it sounds pretty good. But then when I listened to the vinyl, it sounded just so much richer. Now, every album I listen to, I want to get it on vinyl and I want to listen to it. Um, so I'm just curious as to, we've talked to a few people who have vinyl collections. Uh, I, like you, felt no need to get into it because I didn't want to have my whole CD collection twice yeah, yeah. in CD and in vinyl. So now now I'm kind of tempted if it's something I'm going to get into. So if you're a person who is listening and has a vinyl collection or knows what it's like to get into it, has any suggestions for someone who's wanting to get a turntable get into it please add those comments but i'm uh yeah i think it's something i might do um because this there was a lot going on in this album there's a lot of different instrumentation like blonde on blonde mm-hmm. like he has a lot of different musicians in and and there's a lot of sounds and i think i don't know it just adds a depth to it so anyways just an aside but something that's been on my mind i don't know uh ben you don't have a record player or any vinyl right now no um i bought a few yeah. vinyl albums and played them on my parents record player when i still lived at home right. but uh i got rid of those like 40 years yeah, ago long time ago <laughs> yeah i'm actually <clears throat> i'm a little bit surprised that we don't have a button on the various digital music players uh to click to give it that sort of vinyl warmth um mm. Seems like oh, that'd be a really easy filter to have on iTunes yeah. or Spotify or whatever. Um, and I've thought about that quite a bit since we had that conversation with Ryan about, you know, the different sound of vinyl. And uh, there is yeah. something about certain kinds of albums. I think Ryan was speculating that it may be ones that are vocal forward. But uh, mm. I think especially when we're talking about singer-songwriter types, I had on uh, Gordon Lightfoot this afternoon, uh, one of our canadian music heroes and uh his his voice just seems like it would be so much better in a sort of warmer vinyl sound than uh playing it off my laptop and uh so yeah i don't know get get on it spotify just give me a big (laughs) vinyl sound uh button to push Uh, a a button that looks like a record yeah or a or a warm comforter (laughs) <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah. I have a question that 
Chris, unfortunately, won't be directed to you, yeah, but maybe you can comment as well. Um, but for Ben, and, and, and I'll answer as well, did you have any preconceived notions going into this? I guess, Ben, you had listened to this you know, some at some point, but I guess, and then promptly forgot about it. So, yeah. So, so did you have, cool. what were preconceived notions coming into this project, uh, listening to it? The bar for Dylan's pretty low, uh, for me, <laughs> oh, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, highway 61 really just dropped it down. And unlike you, I was not as enamored with blonde on blonde. And so oh, that's right. Yeah. I was thinking this is going to be kind of his, his third chance to, uh, you know, three strikes you're out. I was going to just say, okay, I'm done, <laughs> but I actually really enjoyed this one. Um, despite there still being some instruments out of tune, despite his voice still being, uh, you know, a little off kilter sometimes, uh, I was, my preconceived notions was that I was not going to like it and it was going right. to be a grind. And, uh, I'm kind of ha happy to share that it, it was pretty decent experience <laughs> and we'll get into more of that i guess yeah. as the time goes on i wonder too when you when you set your expectation lower for anything <laughs> for anything yeah. that you know it can surprise you i i yeah. gotta be honest i didn't know what to expect because i didn't enjoy highway 61 i really enjoyed blonde nice. on blonde and that was the same thing i expected not to like it and i really liked it with this one i i had no idea i didn't know what kind of music i was going to get yeah, uh, I wasn't really familiar with any of the tunes, so it's it's kind of it's kind of fun to go into a record or any experience, but a listening experience and know nothing about it. Same as like Velvet Underground, I pushed play yeah. and I was like, "Here yeah, we go!" Yeah, yeah. I yeah. have no idea what's going to happen here. This is exciting, yeah. um, and yeah. for people who listen to a lot of music, this project has been so exciting because you push play on a really popular album that you've never heard. Right. And I did that again for blood on the tracks and like you, Ben. Yeah, it was uh, very enjoyable. We'll, we'll get into that. Um, and Chris, I mean, feel free to jump in here if, if you have anything to say, but we know that you are familiar with the album. No, I, I remember, I don't know if you guys watched freaks and geeks. It was popular when I guess we were in university first few years. There, there's a character yeah. in Freaks and Geeks who's a bit of a pothead, and she has uh, the Grateful Dead's, um, I think it was American Beauty, and she said or one one of her her aspirations in life was was to try and remember the first time she heard American Beauty, and and live like that for the rest of her life. So I envy oh. you guys hmm. hearing it for the first time. <laughs> I really like this album, and I'm living vicariously through you. So. Somewhat differently than, uh, you know, when I pressed play on Highway 61, I had those two other albums in the back of my head that I have spent a decent amount of time with now. Um, so that did change the preconceived notions. I, I think hmm. I had an assumption that I kind of, you know, I knew that this one was later than both of those. And I kind of assumed that it would be following a trajectory building on those two. And so... Uh, yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect, but I thought I had some sense, and I was pleasantly surprised that uh, it was better than I anticipated. Too. Did you guys found it was like more polished? Did you? I remember our last conversations oh, yeah. was like, oh yeah, like that was the main critique that Dylan, like he's an artist, but he's not an artist in the sense that he polishes his work. Right. And I'd I'd call that to uh, production value, like just yeah. And I can't speak because I haven't researched enough to know who was producing and, and what their technique was. But the album, like 61, it just didn't seem finished. Yeah, yeah. Like It's like they 
they recorded it once and didn't go back to fix okay we have an issue here we have this is out of tune here um we could tighten this up it's just like they were like hey great job guys let's yeah, go yeah. home uh you know and for i would say blonde on blonde and for this you know yeah it wasn't perfect there are some things i say okay this yeah. is this isn't perfect um but it all seems to work and it does seem a little more carefully yeah, crafted. Yeah, it is, it's yeah. more produced. I was, I don't know where I read this, maybe the liner notes or like some essay about, I've, like I, I, I can't cite my sources, but somewhere in reading this past week, someone said at, like at the recording, the initial recording of this, I think it was in New York, like there was a lot of wine going around and, and same deal, like Dylan just kind of, pushed fast forward like they didn't do a lot of takes and takes and takes it was like that one's good enough and keep going <laughs> which i kind of i i like that that artistry it, um for some reason that i can't quite put my finger on but hmm. but that resonates with me and, and the imperfections that you hear on this album are in my view at least part of the art of what's going on i can i can buy into that i i, I dig that Chris, uh, before we get into the details of the album, I'm wondering if you can sort of, for those of us who are brand new to Dylan or are uh, not huge fans, can you place this in the uh, Dylan canon for us? Where does it fall uh, along the, the spectrum of his career and how is it viewed by fans? Is this one... Uh, similar to the the way that the Rolling Stone list says, is it is it seen as his third greatest album of all time, or one of his greatest albums of all time? Is it um, exceptional for any particular reason among oh, Dylan yeah. fans? I think it is. How, how does that feel? I, I mean, Dylan fans. I don't speak for them. They didn't elect me in any capacity, right? But uh, um, well, <laughs> we've elected you. You, you guys are killing me. <laughs> Um, but here's what, so just, here's what I, my sense of it is Dylan was always like a very, and continues to be, as far as I'm aware, a very private person Like you don't get stories out of him that are coherent, that fit on a timeline. Like you don't pin him down in any regard. He doesn't answer leading questions and open-ended questions tend to go like rambling in various directions, but in uh, Blood on the Tracks, he's he's put maybe more of himself into the album. And he, I think in interviews, he's very cautious to say that this is not autobiographical. But it, it does stand out from his other albums in that like it's a sad album. Um, it's a hopeful album at the same time. I think as I listen to this, I think, so this is just me postulating here, but I think there's he's captured like an experience of nostalgia in this album as well. And I don't know if you guys are going to go over this, but we do know that this album was written at a time when he was splitting up with his wife. I think he was 33 or so uh, splitting up with wife, Sarah. I couldn't tell you if it's his first wife or or where that, but um, I, I do think he wrote some of himself and he ventured something of himself in this album that he hadn't previously. So in terms of songwriting craft, like in my view, it's above and beyond what he's done before. Well, that's a pretty good segue because I think we'll talk about some of that kind of right away. So let's let's move into some details. 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 
Uh, and this album was released January 20th, 1975. So we recorded most of it in 74. And to answer your question again there, Ben, uh, this is his 15th studio album. So it kind of, I guess, falls sort of in the middle of his career because he, he's still producing records to this day. I think his last one was in 2017, so just two years ago. Uh, so it's somewhere in the middle. And you're right, Chris, uh, just in historical context, he was estranged from his wife, Sarah. It was his first wife. Uh, it was her second marriage. So there were already some some issues going on there. And Dylan has uh, not admitted that this is uh, autobiographical. He said it's not about himself, but pretty much everybody uh, doesn't believe yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and says that <laughs> that it totally has to do with everything that was going on in his life at that time, uh, but he denies it. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> he he wrote, needless to say, he wrote the whole album, and uh, and the album did very well. It charted number one in the U.S., number four in the U.K., and to date has sold over two million copies. Um, uh, and I don't know if anybody has anything to comment on this, but this album, and maybe it has to do with some of its, his some of its success. It's his return to Columbia Records. I think everything else he did was with Columbia, and then he did two albums with Asylum hmm. Records. But then from this album, he returns back to Columbia after being with Asylum. So that that could be interesting in terms of production. And also, this album was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2015. Hmm. So I think that lends itself to the comments from Dylan fans and Dylan aficionados that this is indeed viewed on as one of his greatest albums. And I would say to answer your question, Ben, from what I read in my research, um, that uh, even though Rolling Stone puts this as kind of the third best, most reviews I said said this is arguably his very yeah. best. Yeah. So again, interesting and as we've talked, you know, the Rolling Stone list seems to have more to do with a song or a period than the whole album. And again, one of one of the issues that we've discussed with the list is that it doesn't necessarily have to do with the success or even the enjoyment or the preference of the whole album because most people seem to like this the most yeah. uh, of his albums. So, or say that it's you know, if it's not the best, it's right up there. Yeah. So that yeah, that kind of all wraps together. Um, any other comments on some of those first details? I thought that the uh, Rolling Stone blurb for their greatest 500 albums was had a few details worth pointing out here. Um, sure, he was so into the creation of this album that he he wrote all ten songs in just two months. Um, he was. They say he was so proud of them that he would privately audition uh, the album from start to finish for his friends, including people in the music industry, uh, before the album had even come out, just to say, like, look at this thing I've created. Um, but one of the last people he did that with was his brother, who said, who said, yeah, actually, it's pretty good, but I think you could go back in the studio and re-record half of these. So he had a completed album and uh, basically scrapped half of it, went back into the studio and uh, re-recorded huh. five of the tracks. Mm -hmm. So half of the album was recorded in New York. I guess the whole album was recorded in New York initially. Um, 
but only half of the album survived that initial recording. Uh, he went back into the studio in his home area in Minneapolis and re-recorded the uh, five of the songs. So it's um, it'd be interesting to to figure out you know if we can notice as we walk through these ten tracks um, which ones went from which recording session. The final mix has. Uh, sort of faster, the faster, more upbeat songs come from the Minneapolis studio session. The slower ones were the more, the more pensive songs are from the New York recording. So yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I want to talk a little bit as we always do about the album artwork. Uh, Such an interesting image. And I think that most of his albums is just a picture of Bob. This is, a strange looking pixelated image. It looks like a painting and the left quarter yeah. of it is just solid kind of maroon burgundy color. It says Bob Dylan blood on the tracks. Each of the words are stacked on top of each other and each are underlined with a line going all the way over to the left of the album cover. And I found, I found an article about it. This is not a painting. It's a photograph that was modified, and it was taken by a photographer in Toronto. His name is Paul Till, and he mm-hmm. took the picture during a 1974 concert at uh, Maple Leaf Gardens. And then he took it back to his dark room and oh. used different techniques and photographic watercolors to make this what they call atomized haze image of Dylan and then he mailed it Mm. to Dylan's management and after that there's really no story as to how it got on the cover but obviously someone got his hands on it uh, and then put it on the cover so that's kind of the somewhat ambiguous story of how this got there but it's it's kind of I don't know what do you guys think of it I it's kind of weird and underwhelming uh, to me you know what the <laughs> when we listened to uh, the Sun Sessions that Al- Elvis um, compilation, I think I remarked at that time that the image looked like a textbook right. that we would have had in grade school. Kind of this like hand drawn, uh, almost painting, and and I get some similar vibes from this, like a I don't know nineteen eighties uh, attempt at at uh yeah. painting uh, it also makes me think of those magic eye posters oh, that yeah, were really yeah. popular when we were in grade school <laughs> yeah. you'd sort of unfocus your eyes and another image would emerge i tried that on this and nothing happened yeah i'm getting um i'm getting a similar result right would now really crazy if it did. <laughs> yeah uh yeah yeah it's interesting it was taken on stage do you know mike at all uh well it, it says it says it was shot during during a concert so uh, yeah, I would assume yeah. so. You know, if he was side stage uh, or on stage, yeah, why yeah. not? Or it could have yeah. been backstage, but um, it says during, so we would assume yes. I don't know. The, it seems to signify something. I confess I haven't fully thought about this, but it's like a snapshot, a moment in time, and but there's a lot of meaning involved in that one moment. But beyond that, I don't know what that meaning is. I like it, though. I could like if yeah. I was in college again, I could see having this as a poster on my wall. But uh, those those <laughs> days have passed. Well, 
that's <laughs> going to go in your man cave, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I got to get I'm, one of those too. I've, I'm going to have one. It doesn't make me think mid-70s. No. And, and maybe that says something good about it. Like I, it, it doesn't. It doesn't place it in the 70s the way that some of the albums have placed bands specifically in the decade. That's right. I, we just listened to Jimi Hendrix and, uh, you know, the, the various album covers for Are You Experienced definitely oh. put it back in time. Uh, this one does not necessarily make me think of a certain decade when no. I look at it. No, this could be from the 90s, like early 90s. Yeah. It's yes. got that kind of electric fluorescent type purple. Yeah. Uh, and if if I had to just guess without knowing, I would have said, yeah, late 80s, early 90s, um, a band, uh, yeah, a, a late 80s art, uh, you know, art theory textbook. Uh, <laughs> yeah. right. um, interesting you mentioned Elvis because that album – was released only one year after this. So kind of a similar, you know, now we're doing drawings or modified photos. Um, and also one more detail that I forgot I wanted to mention earlier. This is only our, so we're at number 16, but this is only our fifth album from the seventies. Uh, most have been from the sixties and a cup uh, one from the fifties. So again, it's, it's still centered in the sixties, but we're starting to branch out a little more. Yeah. In case you're keeping track, it was Marvin Gaye and the stones and the clash all in the seventies. And then if you count Elvis Presley, which was released in 76, but everything on that album was recorded in the fifties. So maybe this mm -hmm. is like four and a half, <laughs> four and a half, four, 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 four point fifth album from the seventies. So interesting. Chris, Hey, favorite tracks. Do you have oh. do you have favorites on this album? Are they all your favorite? Uh, there's some I like more than others. Yeah, favorites. It's gonna be hard to choose. Um, Simple twist of fate is a masterpiece. Amen. Like, <laughs> like it's incredible. Why? why, Chris? Why is it so good? <laughs> We were we were trying to, we were kind of, you know, at Dylan for like, oh, he, like there's no melody, he kind of talks, sings, mumbles, but simple twist of fate, like he's got a melody, like you know that line where he's like, hit me like a freight, and like he yeah. really leans into the freight train thing. Yeah, yep. Like, like you feel the freight train hitting him like a simple twist of fate, whatever that means, and and lyrically he's 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 captured like something very imaginative if i'm trying i'm trying to remember i think it was about like a one night stand with his soulmate and then they don't they don't quite make it but he always keeps thinking about his soulmate does that sound about right i think it's that track sure could but it's it's imaginative and and the melodies are are amazing and it's crafted well and, and he's I singing it. i think you're right I, he's not doing his dylan sort of speak talk he in his way he is singing this song maybe why i find it so compelling i'm just listening to it, it now it's so good <laughs> i i feel like when i okay i listen to the album and i hear tangled up in blue and it's it's uh it's jaunty it's it's a little punchy it's it it kind of bops along and you know you kind of you kind of it, it's got a, a bouncy rhythm you kind of bounce along and then 
we go right into simple twist of fate and it's it's yeah. very it it just it pull i feel like my whole body it pulls it back into what you know the chair i'm sitting in it just calms yeah. me right down and it's a totally different feel and for him to be able to do that yeah. you know within seconds of starting i think that alone to me it is very impressive uh lyrically um <sighs> Man, his his lyrics on this whole album, I'll say just as an overall, uh, it's just these <laughs> almost grandiose stories. The, every song is just is like a short story, and they're very yeah. compelling, and sometimes a little cryptic, but still, they're you know I, this album. I think more than any other album, I wanted to look up the lyrics for every song uh, and kind yeah. of dig into yeah, them yeah. and kind of absorb them so I could listen to it and just kind of have a because sometimes it's hard to know every word you know to hear it but yeah. Um, yeah this this is a very good song a little less rambly I think than the other two albums that we've digested so far um, there, there seems to be you know he's in a comfort space with each one and and he's crafting a tale with each one it doesn't it doesn't wander um, in the same way that the other two albums felt like they did at times. Even within mm. the same song, it seemed like those tracks would go yeah. all over the place. Mike, that, that jump from um, track one to two is uh, Minneapolis to New York City. You get the, the faster-paced okay. Minneapolis studio recording to New York City and then back to Minneapolis for You're a Big Girl Now, another uh, sort of faster-moving song. So you've got that... Mm. Uh, slower, more intentional song right there in track two, which, uh, which is interesting that you notice that that energy shift right out of the box there. Yeah, it's a totally different feel, yeah. um, and and really nice. I wonder if I here's my wondering. I I also looked up the lyrics, um, like Mike did. I I couldn't follow a story necessarily. I'm thinking of. Um, Tangled up in blue. Like, I don't know if he ever manages to settle down with the object <laughs> of his affection. But the timeline is is very strange because it seems like they've had some very personal moments. And then he goes to the strip club and then they don't recognize each other. And then they do. So, but I think you guys say like it captures stories. Um, and I'm, I'm somehow with you. I think it like captures images and feelings that that we that we associate with stories yeah. like very 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 effectively and i i i wonder if he's able to capture those images um because the stories are, that he tells are not linear they're like they're like moments in and out of time that that are generic human experiences that that all of his listeners can grab onto um, but I remember distinctly trying to like nail down what the story is that I'm trying to hear in this. Mm. We're also like shelter from the storm. Like he's got a lot of uh, biblical imagery yeah. imagery in there, and I'm like, who who is giving him shelter? Like, is it Mother Mary? Is it is it Christ? Is it God? Is it where is the shelter coming from? But nonetheless, he seems to. Like it seems like a very relatable song, even though I've got, no, I, like I can't pin him down, but I can sense um, the emotion that he brings to this, needing shelter from whatever. Yep. Hey, is it, this is when when does Dylan like put out his gospel albums? Is that early '80s? I think. 
Uh, what I'm wondering is this, like, he could be starting at this point to struggle with his religious identity. Hmm. Like, there's a lot of... I don't have the lyric in front of me, I confess. But there's a lot of... There's, I seem to remember there's a part in Shelter from the Storm where someone is, is like, dividing up clothes or casting lots or something like this. Um, I, I think... Of all the albums, or of all the songs, I I wonder if he most specifically wrote himself into this one, hmm. uh, even though allegedly he didn't. By, <laughs> but, but like you don't you don't write that type of religious imagery into a song and not mean anything by it, right? That's not how these types of things work. <laughs> um, I'm seeing that Dylan's gospel period started in '79. Yeah, um, so this is not far off, eh? Right. No. Uh, again, my my insightful wife pointed out that there are many biblical and religious uh, allusions here, and a lot of a lot of biblical imagery. And and I would say not just on this album, but many albums, even not in his quote gospel era, he always kind of touched on it. You know, it was always kind of there as maybe part of his upbringing or just part of the culture. But it's always in in the language. Dylan's first, uh, quote, gospel album was 1979's Slow Train Coming. Um, and that was uh, his first, what does it say here? His first effort uh, since converting to Christianity. And it was listed number 16 in the 2001 book CCM Presents the 100 Greatest Albums in Christian Music. So that album also is number 16 in that list of the greatest Christian albums. Very interesting. So then I don't know that every album since then was... You know, was it Christian or was it gospel album? But but I think many of them were. I think he did a I think he did a number of them. So there you go. So it was always something I think that was important to Dylan his writing, at least from a, from an artistic reference, if if not also from a personal uh, spiritual reference. Other tracks, Chris, that stand out to you as favorites? Oh, Idiot Wind is hilarious. <laughs> Isn't it great? <laughs> Idiot Wind is so funny. I You could never write a song like that. I, it probably shouldn't even been written. I'm like, you, somewhere, was it on our Facebook chat or something? You, There's one lyric in there. He's like, you're an idiot, babe, and it's a wonder you still know how to breathe. And that's horrible. <laughs> it, you can't, you shouldn't say that to anyone, and it shouldn't be recorded and released. <laughs> I, I mean, to me, I'm I'm imagining, you know, just being at work and talking to the guys about, you know, a guy's talking about her ex, his ex, and it's just like, man, she, she's such an idiot. I, it's amazing she can still even know how to breathe, you know, like I'm just yeah. imagining that kind of conversation that's, you know, not really appropriate and certainly not kind. And it's the same thing that I would read from, you know, an anonymous troll on Twitter, like just some really, <laughs> really harsh and rude comment, but you know, it's going to get a lot of laughs because it's so out there. It's, and he's doing it in 75. He's like the first Twitter troll. 
um, yeah. before there was Twitter. And but it's like, man, he's he's really whoever he's giving it to here, he's really giving it to him. <laughs> yeah, no holds barred. No. Yeah. It makes me wonder why we didn't see this song pop up during the Trump election. It just seems like a perfect, oh, my a perfect song. To do. <laughs> Uh, this is, this should be like his theme song. Playing on the Daily Show every <laughs> oh, night or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, they couldn't get the rights. Maybe so. Um, I was listening to this album with my wife Nora yesterday and going through. She said, "So, how's this album?" I said, "Hey, it's pretty good. Let's listen to a few tracks." And I picked out a few, and of course, we pulled up the lyrics because it's the first thing Nora always asks me when I'm listening to a song well what are the lyrics about well I don't know <laughs> uh, did you read them no do you know what they are no well maybe you should do that so she's always focuses on the lyrics so we were reading them as we listened and we listened to this one and she was just like oh man like this is <laughs> this is rough we thought it was interesting at the end he changes it in the last line and says um idiot wind blowing through the dust upon our shelves we're idiots babe it's a wonder we can even feed ourselves so it's it's oh. like almost like he's taking some ownership in the relationship but not yeah. really like but he does put it in there at the end that you know that he was a part of it you know yeah. we're both we're both in this but it's kind of like just last minute it's a. Uh, it's a deathbed confession sort of thing. <laughs> I got to admit that it took me probably like halfway through the song the first time listening until I realized that he was saying idiot because the way that he, the infliction in his voice yeah, is yeah, yeah. Like he's like pronouncing a city, a foreign city or something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I thought he was making up a word and, uh, I was like, oh, that's what he's singing about. Oh, okay. It's like Ren from Ren and Stimpy. Idiot. Yeah. <laughs> I also loved, I mean, I we could go through them all, but Buckets of Rain, what a great song too. It was like, um, I think he, I think Dylan was thinking about resilience mm-hmm. in Buckets of Rain. There's, I th- there's a line near the end. He says, life is sad and life is a bust and all you can do is do what you must. And uh, it seems like he's gone through, you know, whatever pain the breakup was, and and he's looking forward. And I, I, it's like he's sad but like hopeful at the same time. And I think he's been he's been able to capture that very effectively, in my view. Yeah, it's got a real Nick Drake solo singer with a guitar mm. kind of sound to it, uh, and it just seems like yeah. a really sweet way to wrap up this album. And an appropriate time length, uh, as opposed to some of the long-winded songs that went on and on and on for the other albums that we listened to. Yeah, he's got he's got one long song on here, doesn't yeah. he? Where is that? Uh, uh, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. Yeah, that's right. kind of like a like a train shuffle. Some what it's what I've got it here. Eight minutes and fifty-one mm-hmm. seconds. Yeah, that's a fun song too, though, isn't it? It is, and I, that's one I wanted to comment on. One thing that all three of us have commented on already is even with some of his, you know, monotone Bob Dylan-esque vocals, this album is very melodic and the melodies, not only in the instruments, but in his lyrics and his vocal, the melodies are really fun. And I really like the melodies on Lily Rosemary and Jack of Hearts. Mm -hmm. It, uh, 
the melody really just kind of goes up and down. It goes up and down the scales. And it's a lot, it is a lot of fun. It, it's not a complex song. It's just, you know, like, it, what, eight, ten verses? It's just, again, it's just a story. It follows three or four characters through a little short story. Um, and a lot of imagery and, you know, twists and turns and, and a lot of uh, domestic mishaps along the way. And it, it's just fun. It, again, my wife Nora says, like, geez, how, how many verses are in this song? <laughs> I said, well, it's almost a nine-minute song, but he's, he had a story to tell. So he doesn't, Bob Dylan doesn't care how many verses are in a song. No, no. Well, guys, I've got ten <laughs> verses here. Let's go. Uh, like, doesn't matter. This is the story he wanted to tell. So there's no, and again, there's no, this is another one. There's no first chorus. It's yeah. just ten. It's just ten verses. <laughs> like it's just they just go. So, yeah, that's one that I that jumped out to me was was a lot of fun. My daughter's name is Lily too, so it kind of it's always fun when you hear your kid's name in a tune. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And for me, uh, Idiot Wind, you know, just it's kind of a riot, just a blast. It's a, it's it's kind of you kind of laugh and shake your head. Uh, Tangled Up in Blue, Simple Twist of Fate. Really like Shelter from the Storm. It's very, someone, I think it was my wife, Nora, who said, uh, very Simon and Gar- Garfunkel kind of. Yeah. Um, got Bridge Over Troubled Water, similar kind of imagery and almost feel to that. Bob Dylan seems to always reference multiple geographic locations mainly Amer- American places you there will be many people listening to Bob Dylan's music on any album at any time who are able to put themselves in a place that he references mm-hmm. whether it's a city you know he's, he talks about a number of different cities on this album uh, New Orleans Delacroix all these different places all across the country and he's I think every album we've listened to has several tracks which go through different cities or states or areas and i think that it i mean i think any anybody loves that no matter what your country you're from you love hearing those references i think it's very american to kind of reference that you know being i was in this city and i've worked in this city i think that is a uniquely american kind of trait in songwriting and storytelling and it's something i think that has kept him relevant throughout the years as he's written different things yeah, and this—he also has a line about going to Tangier, doesn't he? Where's that? Oh, I, yes, I want to. If talk you see her that. say hello, he's got a, a lost love <laughs> yes. in Tangier. I thought that was a lot of fun. This and I—we went to Morocco a while ago. I forget when. Oh wow! But it was—it was a very beautiful country. Um, I looked up the lyrics for "If You See Her and Say Hello," but unfortunately, he doesn't <laughs> say anything more about Tangier. Other than if if you see her say hello, did you go to Tangier? No, this is um, Morocco was incredible. Like it, it was like like going back to to felt like I was in Aladdin movie. I, I don't know if I can say that. I'm allowed to say that, but it was great. Uh, the Tangiers reference is interesting, and and the only thing I really know about the city was what I learned from Anthony Bourdain's uh, Parts Unknown <laughs> because in one of the first uh, my wife and I have been trying to go back and watch that um, 
especially since uh, Anthony's passing mm -hmm. earlier uh, this year, late last year. Um, and in one of the first seasons, he goes to Tangiers, and it was a very popular place for mostly British expats in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and was kind of like this sort of art artistic hub, like, you know, writers were there and painters were there. It was kind of the place you went to to get away and there was, you know, there were the opium dens and there was this kind of, it was like a fringe group of upper class people, like very cultured, very artistic people. Yeah. And I wonder if in the 60s and now the 70s, this would have been a place that a certain group that Dylan may have yeah. associated with would have, would have been there and this would have been kind of not the average you know the average rock and roller wouldn't have been there but the you know the author or the the Hemingways the other people yeah. who hang in those circles would have that's a place that they would have been familiar with or would have lived in or gone to so maybe he's kind of showing that he's part of another group here I don't know yeah no I think you're right Mike um, comes to mind is Graham Nash wrote that song uh, Marrakesh Express uh, there's some other writers that I'm going to embarrass myself by trying to remember so I'm just not going to remember them but they're famous people that if, if we knew what we were talking about we'd be like yeah that's an artsy cultured classy person so I think you're right there's, there's, yes there's part of he's signaling something here I think so. About like a, a cultured artsy sub whatever. Any other comments on tracks before we move on? Well, I think um, we've almost mentioned all 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if we about. need to do a uh, track listing rundown, but I, I really like You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go and Meet Me in the Morning, two tracks that are they're back to back. I think they work well. Well, I think those are the only two we haven't named, so <laughs> we got them all. <laughs> uh, I'm still trying to put my finger on you know what it is that 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 lifts this from you know my frustration with Dylan to something that I find uh, quite moving. And uh, aside from his uh, desire to sing more than speak, I'm also drawn to the guitar quality. Um, we get yep. we get some really lovely acoustic guitar sound that doesn't sound like a beat up old slightly out of tune instrument um, I think in the, in those two earlier albums you get a lot of kind of thin bodied acoustic guitar sounds that are kind of um, like you'd find in a in a club early in the morning at, you know what was it 2am was what oh, yeah, one yeah. on one was yeah, supposed yeah, to be 2am music, two, or two yeah, music yeah, um, slightly out of tune piano and stuff this sounds like uh, you know Sunday afternoon coffee shop Dylan you know with the yeah. well-tuned uh, uh, you know Martin guitar with a deep lush sound there's no fret buzz here there's no like plinky off notes um, there's even I think some nylon string classical guitar on a couple of the of the songs so there's something about the I don't know it, it's an interesting mix with a kind of melancholy uh, lyrical content but with a better production value, um, yeah, that I find really compelling. Yeah, you're a big girl now. Has almost that flamenco feel with some of that nylon yeah. uh, guitar. I believe that. I believe I mentioned the right track there. Um, he he was not using the band for this album. Uh, the band no. being his, his backing band. This is 
This was, do we remember who the backing band for this album was? Uh, the backing band changes depending on which studio you're talking about. Uh, right. You're right. Okay. Right. I looked through the, the names and I didn't recognize any. Uh, Billy Peterson uh, plays bass on a few tracks and he might have been on on uh, Blonde on Blonde but I don't recognize any of the names even from, from the other records that he's done so uh, uh, Blonde on Blonde was 1966 I think and so that was the first album where he started touring with the band and then using them but by 68, 69 they had already kind of gone off and done their own thing so he only had them for a few years there gotcha. uh, and then he's using i think and don't quote me on this i think mostly session musicians he might have had a few people i guess that would have stuck with him or he may have might have had a touring band but but I, i'm guessing that these guys but are session musicians. the new york uh recordings were with an actual band recording in new york eric weisberg and his band deliverance Originally, yes. originally recruited as session men. Band's deliverance. Right, they were rejected after two days of recording because they could not keep up with Dylan's pace. <laughs> yeah, and Dylan retained bassist Tony Brown from the band, and soon added organist Paul Griffin, who also worked on Highway 61 Revisited, and steel guitarist Buddy Cage. After ten days and four sessions with the current lineup, Dylan had finished recording and mixing, and by November. I cut a test pressing on the album. So then, but then it's after that, that Dylan's brother, David says he didn't like it and urges him. And then he goes in and, uh, re-records them in Minneapolis. Yes. And, and it's his brother with backing musicians recruited by his brother, David. Do we think that Dylan albums have a different feel depending on the backing band or are they all kind of in the same genre? Cause Dylan is at the lead. Well, until this point, I didn't think any of them were any good, so it's hard for me to answer that question, Chris. Yeah. I thought there was uh, a lot more piano and organ in, in the earlier blonde, stuff. In Blonde on Well, at least in Blonde on Blonde. Yeah. Blonde on Blonde, there was a lot. I think, of, you know, one of my favorite tracks um, on Blonde on Blonde is uh, Sooner or Later, One of Us uh, Should Know. Yes. Uh, and there is a ton of piano and organ in that song, and there's a lot on the album in general. I, there is some in this album, but it really seems to take the forefront on a lot of tracks in Blonde on Blonde. So I think it does make a difference. Um, yeah. But the the cornerstone of the songs are still Dylan. Like, he's driving the, yeah. the feel of the song. But, yeah, you know, I think it does. I think it does make a difference. Yeah, I think the backing band matters... A lot. I'm thinking of like '80s Dylan as well. There's a Oh Mercy, which is produced by Hamilton native. His name is Danny Lanois. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's 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 very like well produced. And it has like you can tell it's Dylan still, but 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 the quality is like light years, if I can say, ahead of. Uh, his 60s stuff that was critiqued right, yeah. so heavily last time we were together. <laughs> yeah, I knew. I think the backing band plays into the feel of this album a lot. Any other any other comments? Any other comments for Blood on the Tracks? 
Did we cover everything you wanted to cover, Chris? Yeah, very thorough, you guys. <laughs> well, that's how we like to do it here. <laughs> yeah, very fact, professional. It's the only way we do it. <laughs> I I want to I want to add a new question and um, that I don't know Ben if if something we'll want to ask every time, but uh, after listening and reviewing, is is this an album? You know, and even for you, Chris, you hadn't listened to it in a while. You enjoyed putting it on again and listening to it recently. Uh, in the next few weeks, is this an album that you would uh, put on again? Would you listen to it again? Um, maybe. But let me qualify that. Okay, yeah. Is uh, So when I was listening to it this week, I listened to it a few times. And I already may mention this, but I got caught up in like this world of Dylan covers on YouTube. And, oh. and, and I, I don't feel good about saying what I'm about to say, but the the covers a- are able to bring out the melody in ways that Dylan couldn't mm. originally. <laughs> so some of these songs that are like a 10 on the album, in my view, become like 11s by these covers. Um, I didn't write it down because I didn't think we'd be talking about this, but there's there's a cover of Boots of Spanish Leather by by a, f- a guy and and a girl and she plays the violin and he plays the guitar and it's got some odd million number of hits from uh 2014 and that was on i i must have played that five or six times in the course of an afternoon just being so struck by some of these covers of of these songs and other dylan songs so probably what i'm going to do these coming weeks is uh I, I might put this album back on, but for sure I'm going to make a little playlist of Dylan covers that I think like capture the melody of his music and, and put like a fresh or a bit more modern twist on things. My, my son Silas and I, we, I was trying to put him down for nap the other afternoon and it turns out that he'll listen to Dylan. It doesn't capture him the way that like R&B from Post Malone does, but he'll, he, it's tolerable to him so... So we might we may try to, to switch over to some Dylan covers for the coming week. Cool. Ben, would you listen to it again? Um, I think I would. I think I'd put it on again just to uh, clarify that I really did enjoy it as much as I'm feeling in this moment. Um, yeah, just, <laughs> just to, to make, make sure. sure. And uh, as I mentioned, I was... You know, I was listening to Gordon Lightfoot this afternoon. I think I'm in a, in a sort of singer-songwriter kick mm. right now. And, uh, and one of my favorite things to do is to kind of put an iconic album like Blood on the Tracks on while I'm doing housework work or uh, writing or something like that and just let whatever they select after that to keep playing. I, I like that way mm. that it introduces me to... Mm. Well, it also brings up songs that I love, but introduces me to artists that I've uh, never heard of. And so I think I'm going to store this one away as like, a, you know, when I'm in kind of that rainy day, uh, Saturday afternoon vibe, put on Blood on the Tracks and get through those 10 songs, enjoy them, and then see what else comes. And it'll probably be appropriate for the mood of that day. So, yeah, I can see that happening. Um, yeah, I like that. What do you think, Mike? You going to listen to it again? I don't think I'll listen to it right away. I think I would listen to it again. I think I might select just a few tracks. I still think really? I like Blonde on Blonde That's surprising. More. Um, I really liked that album. It just it brought something out of me. 
Um, but I really like the lyrics on this album. They are so compelling. Um, I think I, if I'm going to listen to it again, I think I'd want to do it the whole mm-hmm. album with the lyrics in front of me, uh, reading reading along because they're just it's so interesting. It's it, it's I don't know. It doesn't feel like any of his lyrics are just fluff or meaningless. They're all intentional. Maybe some, and maybe some of them are. Maybe some of them are just he wrote it down and that was it. But, or as some artists say, you know, you don't necessarily have to read into every song I write. Sometimes it's just words I pen down and they they sounded good and that was the song. It doesn't have to be this big philosophical or autobiographical uh, yeah, yeah. Disp- or, um, dissertation. It's just a song. But these yeah, they're more than just songs. These Surely, feel yeah. very. There's a lot of depth to these lyrics. So, in the short answer is yes. I, I will listen to it again, guys. Is this is this album still relevant, Chris? What, what do you think? Well, yeah, it is totally. It 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 could it could even be like it's got a sound that kind of fits with our own time as well. We're having a bit of a folk rock revival with people like the Lumineers or mm-hmm. um, I'm gonna off the top of my head comes Mumford and Sons. Mumford, yep. And probably others that you can think of that are not coming to mind right now. But I think it, Brandy Brandy Carlisle just did something with Dave Grohl, so she's yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. an artist who's yeah, so yeah, a lot of these artists are coming coming to the forefront. Yeah. I don't think it's set just within it, within its time, it, it's it's a breakup album, right? And that's mm. like breakups don't just happen in 1975. Like, no, that, uh, that's always we, relevant. <laughs> we hope people are not breaking up. I guess it's sad, but it's it speaks beyond its time, in my view. Yeah, I agree. I think I think it's one of the most relevant albums we've listened to so far on this list. And I say that because all the instruments, the way they're played, the guitars, harmonica, organ, at least for this time right now, these are all instruments and they're played in a way that is being played right now in our current kind of acoustic indie folk music that has become quite popular of late. So I would say maybe five years ago or five years from now, maybe not, but for right now, it's very relevant. And the kind of singer-songwriter feel mm-hmm. is coming back. The only thing I would say that is dated is the sound of the drum kit. This, The drums sound very different than some the other albums we've listened to. And I think drums, and Chris being a drummer, you could probably relate, are probably one of the hardest things to record and mic properly. Uh, there's a lot of technical issues with them. And through time the technology and the techniques got a lot better and in the 70s the drums to me sound very different but very unique when you hear a rock track from the 70s you you can tell because of the drums if nothing else Hmm. and this album to me sounds like it doesn't sound like a 70s album you know the way he's playing the the guitars the other instrumentation it sounds like it's another 60s album in terms of the type of music except for the kit sound to me and the snare sound is very 70s so that's the only thing that felt a little dated but the rest uh very relevant i don't know if anyone else 
kind of felt that, but. Yeah, well, I was trying to piece in my mind what a 70s drum kit feels like. My, in my mind, I go right to like John Bonham from Led Zeppelin, very deep and boomy. Is but I now no, I can't. That's, that's not yeah. what I'm getting at. More of a pop sound. More the snare is 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 a lot tighter and it's more. Uh, there's a lot. Seems like there's a lot more production and maybe modification on the on the snare sound and and the hi hats. It's I don't know. It's a little tighter, a little more compressed as a, a, a maybe a sixties. I think. It's a muted snare too, right? It's not as yeah, yeah. It's not as no. It, the as. the you know think about the the sixties and the Beatles. You know the snare. It's a very loose, uh, yeah. echoey okay. snare sound. This is a very tight, um, a tight snare and hi hat sound. And no, not a John Bottom like that's just a rip roar and rock and roll hard rock kind of thing. This is more like a pop, like a think about a disco or like an, think of an Elton John. Yes. <laughs> That kind yes. of very poppy. That's what I'm hearing here, which is much more of a '70s thing than a '60s yeah. uh, folk rock. If if that if that makes sense to you guys, that's what I heard. Yeah, Mike. Just to clarify, like, would you put like uh, like David Bowie's snare drum sound? Does that sound '70s to you? Uh, a little rockier. Oh, okay. But I guess the sound that I'm I I think the sound I'm thinking of is is the pop sound, the pop kit. Um, maybe it has to do with the the producer or the tech, or maybe it's the drummer and the kit he used. Hmm. Um, you know, Bob Dylan gets one drummer instead of the other, and it changes that sound. But but I'm thinking, yeah, that Elton John, I think, is really it, and maybe the disco type sound. Uh, Bowie, I was trying to think of Bowie, like um, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Ziggy Stardust. Like, there's a very tight snare throughout that album i'll tell you what though i am gonna yeah. go re-listen to this now and look for this for the drum sound actually <laughs> sure now we have yeah. in uh in just two albums we've got springsteen's born to run uh also produced in 1975 and just clicking through a couple tracks here i get a more muted snare drum in that in that album yeah. as well i would have never said that that was a 19 a mid-70s drum kit well, sound so you have you've uncovered something here mike that i well i and and i would have never for 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 the sake of science and being fair in our study you know go back and and <laughs> listen to some of the stuff that we've listened to from the 60s and i think that that kit sound especially the snare and hi-hat is very very different and i think it gives a totally different wow. atmosphere to the songs and hmm. dylan's songs are not drum heavy no, uh, but there are a few tracks that use it, and that was something to. It was just the one thing that made it sound like more of a '70s album. But everything else, I mean, if you took the kit out or changed the kit, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't sound like a '70s album at all. It sounds like it's still Dylan's, you know, folk rock from the '60s, which isn't yeah. a bad thing. That's not a criticism. I think this is what I expected. Uh, the first two Dylan albums to be like. Oh, okay. Singer songwriter focused, acoustic guitar, uh, acoustic guitar driven, um, solid production values. Uh, so I think I wouldn't have been surprised, and I would have sort of brushed this album off as decent or what I expected from a Dylan album, had it been the first one we uncovered. <laughs> but again, that bar was lowered. 
<laughs> for me significantly to the point where I'm really impressed with this one and, uh, and, and think it holds up quite well in terms of its um, appeal now. Uh, I think this is an album I now would be happy to point someone to if they would say something like I probably said several months ago, why do people appreciate Dylan so much? I'd say, well, have you ever listened to Blood on the Tracks? And hmm. I think that's a good place to start. Hmm. I agree with that. Okay, so moment of truth. Uh, Chris. Yes. Is this sound logic? Was this position sound logic? <laughs> yeah, man, totally. This so you, this, is, this, is, this is exactly where it should be in your mind? This is the 17th best album ever, according to Rolling Stone. Um, easily. 16. 16. Yeah, no, it 16. could it could go higher in in my view. Like, not only is it a great album, but it's also influential. It's a unique look at the artist's life. Yeah, it's a really great album. Ben? Uh, yeah, I definitely, well, I'm not sure that it will crack my top 16 when we re-ranked all 500, <laughs> if we ever get that far. <laughs> but it's much better than the two Dil- Dylan albums that come ahead of it. So I think it at least deserves to go two spots higher. It's definitely better than The Stones. <laughs> and I would say I enjoyed it a whole lot more than Velvet Underground. So, yeah, it's nudging into the top 10 just in the albums <laughs> that we've listened to so far. Just based uh, Without on, really trying very hard. <laughs> right, just based on the albums that you can't stand. <laughs> right. Yeah. right? Yeah. can't stands maybe a bit strong for velvet underground but yeah okay okay um, fair enough yeah and, and this you know i can't stand i don't think i've you know we haven't given a single album the uh baby shark uh treatment yet so it's not like i've i've said these are unlistenable albums that we've gone through so far but i i thought highway 61 got it it was real close <laughs> it was teetering <laughs> we, we didn't give it to it though i don't think no um <laughs> I, I would agree with you, of course, you know, as I always say, should have been at least one higher. Um, right. Uh, and I would I would say of the three Dylan albums we've listened to, I'd put Highway 61 here and put this album in the number nine spot and move Blonde on Blonde up closer to where Highway 61 was. I don't know. Still, I think there might be some albums that were better than Blonde on Blonde. Uh, and I wouldn't put that right in the fourth spot, but still I would put this a lot higher. And in a similar way, Ben, you know, I think this is better than a few of the albums we've listened to. So, yeah, i put it. Would it crack the top ten? It'd be close. Maybe Those close. earlier albums, did we cover this? You probably covered this. Like they were influential as well. Um, well, and that's right. been that's been part of the yeah, debate, yeah. Chris, is that we feel that their placement there was more about their influence or one song oh, I, or a peri- yeah. period that it represents. I do remember you saying that. Yeah, yeah. there's a taste is is something that exists within like communities and traditions. Do you know what I mean? Like. Um, like here at our church, we have a contemporary service and a traditional service, and the two talk past each other. Like they don't understand why the other one would do the things that they do and why they would enjoy the things that they like. But it seems like taste and common sense are, are particular to, to certain groups of people. 
So I do think the Rolling Stone writers have tried to 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 flatten that kind of taste thing by choosing albums that are influential um, or important is maybe a better word. But I think that's yeah. uh, one of the most insightful comments on our podcast so far. <laughs> oh, great. Gold star, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and that's a really interesting point because we've Ben and I have really wrestled with that. Why, if this album doesn't sound good, qu- good in quotations, why is it here? And that's been our conclusion that, you know, it, it's there because of what it represents or one song represents or a period that it represents. But maybe uh, that it does kind of remove that subjectiveness if you put in you know the objective influence of it so oh, really interesting idea i'm gonna have to chew on that um one. sure yeah enjoy i guess thank you <laughs> anything else guys i think that's it from me it's a great album I, i'm it gonna is. listen to it again and listen to the drums yeah and you're a great guest thanks chris oh, this is always enjoyable yeah well we appreciate the flattery once again right that's the only reason i'm here really <laughs> you bet. A little boost let us know your mailing address so we can send the fan mail your way <laughs> and uh yeah yeah we'll forward all of that yeah. sure <laughs> um bet. and i guess the we, we're never prepared for this question uh but what's uh, what's our next next uh dylan album bringing it all back home number 31 so Chris, we hope you'll we hope you'll join us again. That'll be in a little while, eh? Yeah, that's yeah. that's fifth that's fifteen weeks from now, so later this year. Yeah, well <laughs> that comes before the next Beatles album though, so he's catching up uh, very slowly. Yeah, what do we have next time, Mike? Well, first we want to thank Chris once again for joining us. Uh Chris, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, not at all. We'll we'll see you again. In the future, guys. Uh, next time on the Sound Logic podcast, we have album number 17, which is Nevermind by a little group from Seattle called Nirvana. So we hope you will join us then. Sounds like it might be another spiritual album. Yes. Very, yeah, uh, in many ways. <laughs> uh, so, guys, until next time, take care. Well, that sounded like crap. Cut that out. (laughs) (laughs) It's very Mr. Rogers. I liked it. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.